2: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Mark Polymeropoulos, and this is DSR's Spy Show. Uh, once again, I'm running solo today. David is off on vacation, and I'm joined by uh, uh, two uh, two friends of mine. Um, this is going to be a, a great discussion. But I have to start this out quickly, and just this is, of course, to annoy all the Yankees fans because I just want to say what a great draft the Boston Red Sox had last night, um, picking up uh, Kyle Teal, a catcher from UVA. Um, I live in Virginia, so. Uh, for all you Red Sox fans out here, out there watching the DSR Spy Show, it's a good day today. But look, I'm super happy to welcome two guests, um, Peter Stroyk and John Seifer. Peter served in the FBI from 1996 to 2018. He rose to, the, to be the deputy of its counterintelligence division. Um, during his career, he worked on multiple national security threats: China, Russia, Iran, Cuba. Um, He's one of the original case agents, in fact, on the SVR uh, illegal. Uh, uh, kind of network, um, which was of course made famous by the television series *The Americans*. Um Peter's the, re- the recipient of the FBI's highest investigative honor, and it's a, it's great having him here today. Peter, Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Mark. And then John Seifer, a good friend of mine, um, a, another a, an incredible resume, twenty eight year career in the in the CIA, multiple. Uh, jobs as a station chief, deputy station chief, known in the media for being an expert on on Russia. And most importantly, as we've said many times, he was one of my instructors in training. So I always joke with him that he kind of birthed birthed me, if that's the right word, um, and, and ultimately any kind of uh, uh, success, but mostly failure is on my successes, is on his shoulders. So anyway, John, awesome having you here as well.
1: I'm sure. It's nice to be here without adult supervision. I think we can have some fun. That's
2: right. <laughs> David is not here, so we, this this might go off. <laughs> usually by the way, we have these discussions at the most famous. Yeah, get the entire podcast canceled
0: if we if we do this, right?
2: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so usually we have these discussions at the most famous dive bar on the planet, the Vienna Inn, which which we always joke is the, you know, the center of the of the deep state as we're on the Deep State Radio Spy Show. It's it's uh, it's pretty funny, but let's Let's uh, let's jump in here, because I think there's a there's a, a topic that I've always wanted to explore. Um, both of you are perfect for this. Both of you, I think, have uh, a lot of experience um, uh, on this issue. But that's the notion of whether or not the U.S. should or should not create a domestic intelligence agency. And I really want to do a deep dive on this. Um, and in particular, just to, to kind of frame things. Look, on January 6th, we had uh, you know a, a, an event which I think will go down as history. Um, not one that was related, of course, to international terrorism. Um, nothing external, but this was domestic uh, terrorism. And so this debate on, you know, d- uh, would the US have uh, perhaps reacted better if there was something like Britain's mi5? Um, certainly something to discuss, but I think both of you all uh, have uh, have different views on this. let's let's start off on this, Peter. If you can give us just a, a sense first of all, Um, A lot of people say, and I think John has mentioned this quite a lot on social media, too, that we should have an MI5. Can you tell us what does MI5 actually do?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. MI5 is uh, better known as the uh, BSS, is the UK's domestic intelligence agency. And so the UK has a foreign intelligence agency, the equivalent to the CIA, which is uh, BSIS or MI6, under the foreign office. So they're their equivalent of their secretary of state. Underneath that falls their foreign intelligence service. They have a similar domestic intelligence agency or MI5, which falls under the home office. There isn't really, the home secretary, there isn't an exact analog um, within the United States, but in any event, uh, MI5 collects intelligence and that is a, a broad, within the UK. And that's a pretty broad mandate for them. It includes, the traditional what the FBI would consider domestic counterintelligence. So they are watching what foreign intelligence services are doing, whether that's the you know the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, all the surrounding activity that goes around there, whether it's counter espionage efforts, counter proliferation efforts. But they also do quite a bit of collection um, against terrorism threats. And again, those are both of a domestic and international flavor. I think if a QAP or Hamas or Hezbollah is doing any sort of activity or fundraising within the UK, they'll do it. But What's really interesting particularly with regard to the uk is of course you had for a long time a very robust uh, domestic terrorism threat coming out of northern ireland and so a lot of activity uh that mi5 traditionally did was on a domestic terror front in a in a sort of topic that doesn't have a very good yet have a very good analog in the united states hopefully we never get there and then where they differ, and the FBI does that in the United States, but where they differ is that MI5 does not have arrest authority. They do not do traditional criminal work. So if they were to investigate a Russian uh, intelligence officer who they identify as recruited somebody in the British Ministry of Defense, they would gather an intelligence. But at some point, they would work with the uh, you know special branch. There are a variety of UK law enforcement partners that they would team with to take a case from a strictly intelligence case to start developing, if it was appropriate, a uh, a criminal case, whether it's a, a counter espionage case, whether it's a counterterrorism case. But again, they don't have that law enforcement power, and similarly, they don't worry and they don't do. They're not looking at financial institution fraud. They are not looking at traditional criminal violations, you know, drug trafficking or gang problems or any number of things. You know, human trafficking. Those things are separate from what MI5 does. There's sometimes some like Intel overlap, but broadly, that's a very long winded, you know, sort of explanation about what they do and a little bit about how it differs from the way the U.S. has things set up.
2: John, what, you know, in your career, obviously uh, with, uh, with CIA, you know, perhaps primarily we worked overseas with um, with MI6, their external service, but we also do have con- contact with MI5. What is your thoughts uh, uh, on MI5? And, and and perhaps, you know, what are some of the advantages that you would see that uh, that an MI5-like entity would bring?
1: Well, we work overseas oftentimes with both their country, and a variety of countries, with their domestic service as well as their external service. And so if we're looking so to work with a country on, you know, their terrorism issue, we'd obviously work with their domestic domestic security service in some fashion. So I want to sort of frame this a little bit differently. I'm not someone who's, you know, has enough experience to say we should create a domestic intelligence service. My point is that we never really had the debate. And and after 9-11 happened, there was a lot of, you know, talk about what what should do, what we should do. Most of the commissioners on the 9-11 committee thought that the U.S. should consider a, a domestic intelligence service. But in that heightened sort of sense of political moment that was sort of pushed away. And in 2004, uh, this new domestic, or excuse me, this new intelligence uh, law was pushed through, but it was also pushed through in sort of a heightened political sense. It was right before the election, you know, where George Bush was running again, and um, running against John Kerry and both of them sort of politicized this quickly and said, I, I support all of the recommendations from the 9-11 commission and the other side said, so we pushed through this law, which is the biggest change in US intelligence in like 70 years. And there was almost no debate. Not even the intelligence committees weren't involved really in in creating the, in in building and creating the law. And the reason I bring that up is every other um, democratic country does it differently. They often they have a an external intelligence service and a domestic intelligence service. Um, I think many Americans, especially after what we saw on January sixth, think that the United States has a domestic intelligence service and thinks that the FBI plays that role. Well, the FBI does have an intelligence mandate, but it's it's largely a foreign intelligence mandate. It's to try to collect information perhaps domestically, but on foreign intelligence issues. And so my concern is that I think the population thinks we have some version of this, and we don't. We, the FBI, um, and we could talk about this more, but you know, the FBI combines law enforcement and intelligence together, and that's not how it happens in most other countries. We have some unique things here with our constitution and stuff, but I don't think we've ever really had the debate, and I don't think Americans really understand the system. And just to give a... a, a go out on sort of a, a quote here, Ephraim Halevi, who was the Mossad chief after 9-11, said that nowhere else in the world excepting the United States are the two functions combined, the function of law enforcement and intelligence. And he says, as long as there's no security service in the United States, th- th- there shall be a yawning gap in the defense of that great nation. And he, so his point was that the United States should try to create a separate service. And one of the things I, I'll talk about with with Peter is I I think the FBI is burdened with too many things. And I think the counterintelligence mission gets sort of subsumed. And certainly uh, there's not much of a domestic intelligence collection, you know, system.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it always makes me chuckle when I, yeah, you know, I mean, my, our Israeli colleagues and I, you know, like you all worked with, you know, at various times, the, Everything from the Israeli National Police to Shin Bet to Mossad, their national police, their domestic intelligence service and their foreign intelligence service. And they would always crow about their capabilities It's like, yeah, but you're in a fucking nation the size of New Jersey with that population that at its most is what, you know, I don't, you know, less than 100 miles wide. So, yeah, you can do great integration of like everything that what's going on in Israel and, the you know, the Gaza and the West Bank. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, the United States is easily... You know, fifty easily uh, times larger, both population-wise and size-wise. So I, I don't look. I might my, my this. I think the topic of, particularly if you look at January six, particularly if you look at January uh, domestic terrorism. I think is the in many ways the best way to address the issue of whether or not we need a domestic intelligence agency because at its core, some of the best in my mind, some of the best critiques against having a domestic intelligence service, you know, and this is coming out of the 9-11 commission work, some of the best arguments were the potential abuse and impact on protected First Amendment activities. And this whole dialogue that we've had, I mean, frankly, we we, we declared independence from the Brits because we didn't want, you know, the king and the crown, the, the intrusiveness into sort of our daily affairs and our ability to speak as we want you know, part of the reason to declare independence was to get away from some of the strictures of uh, the Brits and and the uh, the kingdom. So, when you look then at the evolution of how the state, the American state, has interacted with it, the public, and the role that the American public has expected or wanted the government to play and you go through all the horrible chapters i mean look at you know the the J. Edgar Hoover and the time and the way the FBI interacted with the civil rights movement all the horrible things that were done uh, towards Martin Luther King you look at the church and pike committees you look at the and you know certainly the the agency got rupt, uh, wrapped up in that the IRS got wrapped up in that but a lot of the things that came out of the 60s and 70s you had i think when people john to your point say well you know the FBI does domestic intelligence well they sure did in the 60s you know, counterintelligence program, which is called COINTELPRO, there was a very robust collection about things that now we would look at and say, God, we don't want that at all. So the point being is that we've had a long evolution through congressional oversight, through law of establishing, you know, and creation of FISA, right? The FBI used to just go out and part of COINTELPRO and Martin Luther King and other folks just wiretap people by a finding of the attorney general. And part of the reform was like, no, we need to set up a court. We need to have this Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that is going to establish the procedures to regulate the way that the FBI is going to do intelligence within the United States. So when you, I mean, I get your point, John, that like, do we, you know, there is this foreign counterintelligence role that, you know, does however you adjust or don't adjust based on what the domestic terror threat is, is going to come at a cost potentially of the FCI mission. But I don't know that when it comes to things like, you know, if we fast forward and say, you know, for the purpose of this debate, was January 6th an intelligence failure? And I'd argue it was. The question is why? And I think the why is not so much the FBI isn't set up appropriately to conduct that activity. I think it is more a function of a combination of perhaps implicit bias that, you know, these were largely white men. And that if the people doing this, if their skin color was yellow or brown, it might have had a different response. And there's also, I think, a legitimate question of the or reason for the why, and that is because so much of that activity bumped right up against First Amendment protected political speech, that there is a lot of institutional reticence and built-in guardrails to prevent going into that too deeply. Now. We may need a debate, right? I mean, was that, is it appropriate? Are the restrictions on the FBI too great in this environment? You know, I started in the FBI in 96. I was hired as part of a hiring push after the Oklahoma City bombing. I was hired as an analyst and I was working domestic terrorism. And the limits on what we could do were extraordinary. And, you know, we're all built up around, you know, making sure that nobody's First Amendment protected speech, political speech in particular, was um, adversely chilled by government investigation. So, you know, there's, I, I think there's a reasonable question there. But in my mind, I'm curious, John, what you think, and, and Mark, you as well. I don't think the answer is building a whole new domestic intelligence agency.
2: Let me, let me just uh, jump in here one quick sec, John, because I think that, that Peter brought up a really interesting point, which has to do with with politics. So one of the questions is any kind of reform like this, you know, what is the support on the Hill? What is What are the views of the left and the right? And and what I want to frame for you is everything is kind of, you know, left is right and up is down. You know, the, the left is now the champions of law enforcement and the intelligence community and the right is very busy bashing our old colleagues. So, you know, you can't have this discussion we're having today without actually thinking about the politics as well, this as well. So, John, what are your what are your thoughts on that? And that also might frame whether this something like this could ever be done in this political environment.
1: I don't think it can be done in this political environment. I don't think that a major reorganization or creation of a new entity is going to happen anytime soon. We make changes during time of crisis. And so essentially, I'm saying 9-11 was a missed opportunity for us to take this seriously and think it through. And, we, you know, for political purposes at the time, I think we missed that opportunity. I That's why I think it's worthwhile having sort of smart people and institutions work this stuff through. So if, in fact, there's another crisis that allows us to sort of rejigger and look at these kind of things, we may be better prepared to deal with it. Um, and to get to to peter's point i mean i under, i understand yeah there's a, there's an ugly history there that all has to be taken into effect but i think he was actually making making the argument for a potentially a, a separate organization part of the problem with the fbi is the fbi is too powerful the fbi not only has intelligence but it can arrest you and so that's the cons- i think that's the concern is that you're combining you know the ability to collect on potentially on un- american citizens with the ability to arrest american citizens whereas if those functions were separated so an intelligence organization under very strict legal guidelines could collect on American threats and threats from Americans and and these type of things, but did not have the ability to arrest and and there was some sort of process by which it could be passed over in case they believed that there was a law being broken, then that could work. And so I think in some ways the FBI is, is burdened with too much. I mean, if we think about what the FBI's responsibilities are, I think if you were trying to create this organization from, from scratch, it's unclear to me how you would hire and train people. Because essentially, so you're you want the FBI to keep us safe from terrorism and collect on terrorism. We want them to be a counterintelligence and intelligence collector – a counterintelligence collector to stop us from foreign intelligence threats. They're also fighting cybercrime. They're fighting sex trafficking. They're doing public corruption. They're doing Medicare fraud. They're doing drug abuse, arson, Wall Street fraud, hate crimes, rape, monitoring domestic you know insurrections, even animal abuse, for Christ's sake. There's too much that the FBI is doing. I think if you were to separate so they focused on law enforcement and had intelligence and perhaps counterintelligence in an organization where you, where you would hire differently, you'd hire a different kind of person, a person like Peter, for example, who would come in, who understood the limitations of collections on Americans could and understand what intelligence is, vice law enforcement. I think that's that's something you know the Canadians do it, the British do it, the Israelis do it, um, you know all of our Australians do it, all other our other uh, democratic countries tend to do it. I think it's possible. That we could do that properly, but I agree with you. It's not. It's not something that's going to happen. Creating a new organization is painful and takes a long time. It's just. I think it's something we should think about. We. I think the FBI is doing too much stuff.
2: Peter, your thoughts?
1: Yeah,
0: I, I. I don't know that I agree. I mean, I think the the bureau has done this well for a long time. I mean, are there failures? Absolutely. Was there, you know, a strong case to be made that prior to nine eleven that the Broadly, the FBI's terrorism program should have been much more efficient and uh, better in dealing with information and sharing information and conducting analysis of information. Absolutely. But I do think those those changes occurred. And I think, again, we're looking, you know, the, the issue is people tend to think like, oh, you know, this debate all goes back to nine eleven, which is in a terrorism context. And people don't see you know, the work of the FBI that they were doing in the counterintelligence environment for, you know, we're rounding up Nazis coming ashore on Long Island from from German subs in World War Two. So, you know, and as you both know, you know, traditionally the counterintelligence work of the FBI and, you know, CIA as well, but certainly the FBI isn't something that is talked about much. That was not, you know, the FBI was happy to talk about bank robbers and rounding up organized criminals, but they didn't. Unless it was, you know, arresting somebody like Hanson or Aldrich James, you didn't really see or hear the FBI talking about counterintelligence much. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot there, and I do think, you know, the the, the trouble in saying well, no other Western democracy does it, is there is no Western democracy of the size of the United States. I mean, I was looking at, uh, you know, the UK has roughly uh, a population the size of Michigan. You know, the the US broadly is forty times larger than the U.K. Australia- China and Russia
1: choose to do it this way and they're not, they're pretty big. Yeah, they're, well, <laughs> not democr- they're not yeah, democracies. Yeah, look at the
0: size, yeah, look at, let's look at the size of the FSB and you, you want to see. So, but I mean, so again, you know, Israel roughly the size of New Jersey, Australia roughly, you know, landmass roughly the size. Of, of the U.S., but again, their population is the size of Texas. So, if you want to talk about the way ASIO is doing things, you know, you add in not only Texas, but you know, all the population of California and Boston and Florida and Chicago and everywhere else. It, it, it is tough to things that you can do.
1: But why wouldn't why, why wouldn't you want an organization but, that can fo- that can that can be bigger and focus on intelligence collection? And who who in the U.S. government? Let me ask you a quick question. Go ahead. Who in the U.S. government? is watching social media. So if the Proud Boys are talking about doing something and there's not an open law enforcement case on them, who's watching that to see if there's a potential So, threat so two there?
0: questions. One, the, the first question, before, before you ask the who, the first question should be, do we want the government watching social media? Do we want anybody yeah. in the government? Anybody. <laughs> CIA, FBI, a new agency. Do we want them just going through social media? Their entire job is simply to go out and read what people are saying about, I don't like trump i don't like
1: there needs to be legal legal con, constraints around that but,
0: but yeah but, but what are those the, the point is like i don't think this is this isn't like that 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 debate on what again setting aside the foreign aspect of it that debate about who should you know what is the level of who out there you know setting aside jim Jordan, we can't even get 702 re clean there's not going to be a clean reauthorization of 702 because congress is convinced that you know the fbi is going after. All the Freedom Caucus people, so that that we can't even get that reauthorized. Who in Congress is going to approve anybody, existing or new organization, to just sit out there and go browse the internet and look at you know get ahead of the boom? Right. I want to look at something before somebody says, "I think you know we should build a gala, Right. But but and then the other thing is just sorry. One last one last point.
1: But law law enforcement looks at things no, who.
0: And yeah. then how, let's look at the recent record of creating agencies, right? I mean, we had DHS during the summer of 2020. Uh, I, you had their I, I, Office of Intelligence Analysis creating IIRs, creating intelligence reports on journalists. I mean, what the fuck is that? And you know, when none of us, I, I think, know. want that. And so the question is, okay. And so let's take a step back. I don't know your perception and experience with DNI, the creation of DNI, other than NCTC, which I think has done, in my opinion, a decent job as sort of like an information clearinghouse and across level or across organizations. I don't really think that the creation of DNI ultimately has been a good thing for the efficiency of the operations of the intelligence community. So when you say, "Okay, we're gonna if we create this new agency, where are we getting those people from? How are we training them? How do we, you know, setting aside creating laws? But who do they report to? What are their, you know, what are their who who creates that list of these are the domestic entities that we want to be watched? The current administration." 'Cause Attorney General Barr is gonna give you a very different set of priorities than Attorney General Holder is. And is that really who we want driving? Who's out there watching the internet? I don't think so. And so I don't know how you I don't know how you get there or that we want to get there. All your
1: all your concerns your all your concerns are legitimate. I, I agree, it's not gonna happen anytime soon. But in a theoretical sense, w- w- January 6 happened and there was it's clear evidence of people conspiring whether it's on social media or online or on telephones or in person I think Americans think there's some version of our of our federal government who's paying attention to that and if you're saying no one should then it has to be made clear to the Americans that feel free to conspire on social media because there's no one going to be watching you like and I I agree that there's got to be really it would have if we had a domestic intelligence agency, a law enforcement organization is about you know oftentimes after the fact putting together to go to court. An intelligence agency has to try to analyze, look at potential threats, watch them carefully. That's why it would be something separate from law enforcement. So they didn't have arrest authority, and it had to be it would have to be legally very very carefully structured. I totally agree with you on all those kind of things. But if this country cannot look at any of that kind of stuff, then it has to be made clear to to the American people. Because I I think Americans think that someone in the federal government is paying attention to those kind of threats that are out there. And if they're not, then uh, you know maybe this country could say, "Well, we, we you know we we can't defend ourselves against insurrectionists and, and domestic threats."
2: Let me uh, let me just throw one one last question in this segment. Um, uh, uh, and by the way, we probably could have you know several hours on this uh, on this discussion. This is fantastic. But but one thing, and for both of you, and I think this will this will be quite revealing. So John uh, and Peter, both of you have had experience working actually with each other. You know, this is the CIA FBI cooperative relationship, kind of the good and the bad. I think we've gotten a lot better over the years, um, uh, particularly after 9-11. But and, and and on counterintelligence issues, I think both of you worked on uh, on Russian cases together. But think about uh, with our counterparts across the pond, with MI five and MI six, and in your experiences, do they actually is that model working? Because there is a MI five, uh, you know, how do they get along compared to um, how our external and internal services do? Uh, Peter, take a take a first crack.
0: Well, so my experience certainly working on counter espionage matters, and this isn't so. that's is a subset, right? This isn't looking at a Russian or, or, you know, a Chinese intelligence officer, this is looking at somebody who's been recruited or, you know, is being targeted for recruitment, the inefficiencies, like anytime we would work a joint case, not only with the Brits, but with the Canadians, with the, you know, the Five Eyes partners, there was a inherent inefficiency that when we were trying to sit there and say, you know, or would take, say, say we received source information that somebody had been recruited within an allied nation. And we'd want to share that information. The question of which organization to share it with, whether you go to the domestic intelligence agency, whether you go to the law enforcement agency, getting them to the point of saying, hey, there's something here and there's somebody that's been recruited and it's very bad and we need you to take, because you're a partner and you have access to all our shared information, we need you to take action. The inefficiency and sort of built-in frictions, and again, they don't hate each other, but anytime you separate out their inherent bureaucratic inefficiencies and tensions and rivalries, I found in a counter espionage context, nothing beats, you know, the Bureau being able to have, you know, both the Intel hat and the law enforcement national security powers built in there. Because if you go out there and you're trying to engage with MI5 and you're trying to get special branch engaged as well and getting them to talk to each other and the Bureau can't, you know, you've got to respect those internal relationships. So you're not going to go playing both agencies against each other. In my opinion, there was a a better there is a better process here in the United States, given some of the the, the, the frictions that are inherently there uh, in these in these uh, countries that have separate domestic
2: intelligence and law enforcement agencies. John, what about your experiences?
1: Yeah I mean, obviously, organizations working together is all, is is always an issue. But I, I think if we had the Brits on here, they would they would argue that it, that it works fairly well. I mean, I think you trying to decide who to go to, I think you go to the their domestic security service and let them then work it out. Like essentially what you're saying is the FBI is powerful enough to arrest people and watch people and do all these other kinds of things. But at the same time, you're saying, does our country want to have this ability to do that? And you're saying, well, the FBI can do that. And so, you know, I, I don't, you can't sort of have it both ways. You want the FBI to be super powerful, then there's a danger there. Or do you want, a different group who doesn't have arrest authority and has very st- strict legal uh, strictures around it. In that process, and again, I think we're agreeing more than we're disagreeing because I, I tend—I agree with you. Creating a new organization is painful. There's not a lot of people in the United States who are prepared and trained for this kind of thing. All of those things are true. I just think that, um, and and we, and we may never get there. But I I think because the work that you did and we did is so misunderstood. Even our oversight committees don't really understand what we do. And you see like the people who are attacking the Bureau now, no idea what they're talking about, no idea about the, about what damage they're creating. And so uh, there's there's such misunderstanding, even in the people who are supposed to know, like in Congress and stuff, that, yeah, I, I think it's going to be impossible to do that. But I think our intelligence agencies writ large need to somehow do a better job of educating either the public or the congress or what have you. And on DNI, I won't disagree with you at all on that. And it, that happened essentially because it was politicized after 9/11 and in the lead up to a political election that they just pushed this thing through. And when if you say NCTC has been a success, NCTC essentially already existed in a in an interagency form inside the CIA. It was just pulled over into DNI. I mean there's essentially no change what whatsoever. In fact, the DNI just, all they did is take some of the things that were in existing organizations and then claim that they, they're they doing them. When I, I don't see any much greater efficiency. Now it's probably better than, than it was years ago. And there's a, there's a budget process and there's a means for these things to work. So the DNI, you know, they've had to create a role for themselves that makes sense, where, whereas the law was sort of hastily put together and not Terribly well thought out, and my 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 concern is it just it was a missed opportunity for us to really think through national security in this country, and we may not we certainly don't have an opportunity now to do that. But you know, hopefully, some people listening, smart people listening to this, start to think about these things, so that if the opportunity presents itself with some sort of crisis, perhaps we can think these through in a in a more rational way. Unlikely, but perhaps.
2: Let me let me just add as a uh, as a a longtime member of the Counterterrorism Center, we really had no. Uh, idea of what NCTC um, uh, really uh, really does, and I'm still say, <laughs> um, there seems to be some some du- uh, duplication. But look, this is an awesome conversation. This is the point in the podcast where we have to actually say uh, goodbye uh, to those who are not yet subscribers. If you want to listen to the rest of the podcast, and we have certainly a, another great segment ahead, um, and to all our other shows in full, just go to the DSrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's only five dollars a month, and it brings you a lot of great bonus content. So if you're not a subscriber, we hope you will be soon. And if you are one standby, we'll be back in just one moment.